Welcome to Terminal Talk, a podcast on mainframe and mainframe-related topics. I'm Frank. And I'm Jeff. And we have... Um, what do no, we got? No guest. Um, Wait, it was your week to get the guest. I, I, I was away last week. I, I, I thought you were going to do it. Oh, um, this is kind of awkward then, isn't it? Yeah. Um, what if we just left the door open and see if somebody would come in? That's a good idea. I mean, there's lots of smart people walking around. We'll just... Oh, I did that. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Whoa. Mark, Mark Nelson. Nelson. Good to see you. How's life? What's new? What's exciting? Uh, not a whole lot. We were just uh, waiting he, for you. Waiting, we for, waiting you. for you. Really? Oh, because yeah. we were going to start the podcast. podcast. Yes, yes, yes. Yes. And we were here to talk about, um, why don't we let our guest That's good. talk good about, idea, yeah. yeah. You need something that might be of interest to me, that might be of interest to somebody else who, you know, the six people who listen to this podcast. Hey, hey, hey. 6,000, six I should say. Yes, let's go yeah, with 6,000. Excellent. Yeah. Right. I'll be able to that. Mm-hmm. So we, we have some anniversaries to celebrate this year. Some well, pretty significant milestone ones. That's that's cool, but, I mean, this isn't like a Willard Scott kind of, <laughs> you know, traffic weather birthday kind of thing. <laughs> I understand. No, these, these are techie ones, things oh. that anybody who's been on this platform probably, I hope, knew a little bit about, but perhaps didn't, and perhaps didn't know the significance of some of these enterprises. Well, it beats us sitting here in silence, so go for it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, first, this is the 55th anniversary of IBM System 360, announced on April 7th, 1964. 55 wow. this year, so uh, yeah, you can, you can order off the senior menu at Denny's. <laughs> Uh, CICS or Kicks, 50th anniversary. 50th anniversary, sure, wow. Kicks. And then another really big one that we had a huge, huge role in, and that is the lunar landing. July 20th, 1969, humans took the first step on the moon, and mainframes were in a, a, an essential part huh. of that program. So what, what's what's this all about? Uh, t- t- tell us more. Or is this a, a hobby of yours or an interest? I have been interested in the space program since I was a kid. So I grew up, I was 10 years old when men landed on the moon. Uh, I grew up in Queens. I grew up, uh, I ended up working for Grumman for a number of years, this company that made the lunar module. Oh, and, and they make canoes too, right? They make canoes, they make buses, they make all kinds of things. <laughs> okay. Uh, most famous though for some of their aviation things like right. the F-14, the A-6, some fabulous aircraft. Uh, they were subcontractors on things like the space shuttle, and they produced the lunar module, which is quite frankly, I think, the most interesting aircraft ever created. And it is interesting to think of it as an aircraft. I was just wondering, <laughs> is it considered an aircraft? I consider it an aircraft. It's a, it, it flies through an atmosphere, a very thin atmosphere. <laughs> <laughs> so what role did the – I mean – I didn't see a mainframe in the lunar module when I like visited the, <laughs> the space museum. How exactly did it did it play into the uh, into the launch? So the um, well, I'm going to or the landing or the whole thing. I'm going to move things back by about thirty years. I'll take us uh, there, and, man. And quite frankly, uh, the, no matter what your business in, I've always said that the uh, the mainframe can help you with that business. I don't care if you're doing financial transactions, doing oil field analysis, or your mission is to track things as they go through the atmosphere and they go through space. So some of the earliest technologies, computing technologies that we had, were to do ballistic calculations. Take uh, a projectile, it starts at point A, predict where it's going to land. Uh, some of the earliest machines, the electromechanical machines that we had back in the uh, World War II timeframe and earlier were designed specifically for, for, to attack problems like that. So that's one aspect. And then you have the second aspect of planning all of the logistics that goes into creating a complex mechanical vehicle like a spacecraft. There are many millions of parts that go in it. And in fact, we invented 
an inventory management system to track those parts as part of the Apollo program. So mainframes have been involved in, in many aspects of the, uh, of the lunar project. Well, just going to like the, the part tracking thing, the, the older I get, the more I uh, come to admire the project management side of the whole Apollo mission. <laughs> and because it, it seems like there's nothing off the shelf. I mean, we're going to use this from our existing rocket launch <laughs> software. Everything was probably built from the ground up and needed to be tracked. Well, in some some respects it was, but there was an awful amount of – awful. There was a wonderful amount of reuse <laughs> uh, uh, going on. Um, so, for example, when they needed to do tracking of parts, they didn't go out and invent new computing systems hardware. They realized that they have a perfectly good solution in the IBM System 360. And prior to that, it was other IBM mainframes, the IBM 7090, 7094. And prior to that, it was the uh, 704. Uh, which, interesting, was based in Washington, D.C. with a backup right here in Poughkeepsie. Oh, wow. When I'm thinking about, like, the, you know, the, the capsule, what are we calling it? The, 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 the module? The module is doing, like, its calculations to, to land on the moon. This is obviously not something where there's, like, rudders and flaps going on. There's individual jets all around the thing. Like, you know, that's, that's something that has to be run by a computer. Is that something that's run by... One of these, not it's obviously not a mainframe up there. There's some sort of computer. Yeah, there, there was a guidance computer in the lunar module that was uh, constantly tracking its position with respect to whatever it was trying to meet up with, whether it was the command module or with the lunar surface. So let, let's actually take like a broader a broader view here. So the, the the Apollo mission was the Apollo 11 mission like the 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 golden shot like and everything leading up to that. Obviously, there was like Apollo one through ten. Um, things got renamed. Mm-hmm. How close did they get before Apollo 11? What amazed me about the program is that somebody identified all of the discrete steps that had to occur. Right. So, for example, you had to have two spacecraft meeting each other and the ability to rendezvous. Yes. We validated that in the Gemini program. We had to have the mechanism to go out and have astronauts outside of the capsule, right? extravehicular activity or EVAs. That was also part of what was validated in the Gemini program. When you move to the Apollo program, you move from two astronauts to three astronauts. So there were three programs, Mercury, single astronaut, Gemini, two astronauts, Apollo, three astronauts. Once you're talking about the Apollo program, now you have to manage a whole bunch of new things like getting yourselves out of Earth orbit and into a path to the moon, establishing yourself in a lunar orbit, uh, extracting the lunar module from the uh, surface module, docking with it. Right, uh-huh. So you can transfer, uh, transfer the astronauts, separating so you can descend, et cetera, et cetera. And when you look at the Apollo missions, each mission leading up to Apollo 11 attempted to test and validate one aspect of that. So, for example, uh, Apollo 8, right? fabulous, uh, fabulous mission. It's the first time anyone in the human race left Earth's atmosphere and went and, and uh, went around the moon. And that was the whole, the whole purpose was to validate the translunar injection and that whole process of getting there and getting back would work. Right. Then you had an Apollo mission where they flew to the moon. Apollo, Apollo 10 went all the way, did everything Apollo 11 did except land. Right. <laughs> they got within 50,000 feet of the surface of the moon and then decided, all right, time to go home. And I remember, and uh, that was uh, you know, somewhere in 1969, and I remember the rumors that, nah, they're going to go for it. <laughs> and they didn't. 
<laughs> They're just going to pull an audible and say, as long as we're here. <laughs> We've come 250,000 miles. We've got 10 to go. Now, maybe we should just see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> but but there's, there's a whole lot of math just in, in getting that close, though. I mean, isn't there a, quite a bit um, about getting into that orbit and then descending from that orbit to the, mm-hmm. um, to the moon was – there's quite a bit of math associated. There's a with lot that. of mathematics. There's also a lot of real-time control that has to happen. And as you went from Project Mercury to Project Gemini to Project Apollo, you started seeing more of that real-time analysis, more of that real-time control, being executed from those mainframe systems. And when we say mainframe, we should be very specific. Five System 360 Model 75 Js, one mega storage, <laughs> constituted what's called the RTCC, the Real-Time Computing Complex. And prior to Project Apollo, it was 57094s, I think it was. And prior to that, it was uh, 704, 705, one of those, seven, yeah, one of the 700 series, three of them. And these are systems that are going up with the booster rockets? No, no, no. These are, okay. these are, these are systems that are residing on planet Earth and are getting telemetry data and sending data back. So in, in, terms, of, in terms of architecture of this, are we talking about like the world's biggest client-server model? <laughs> or where does the compute live? Because like, that's something I, I watched the documentary last night. I still didn't get a call. You know, obviously, they didn't go into the detail I wanted about this um, but like what was in Dallas what's in Houston or you know or what's in Houston what's in Florida what's in space like where's where's the compute live that, that's a good question I'm not quite sure the mission control I believe or the, the one center had the the five uh, the five mainframes a- acting as the RTCC the real-time compute complex uh, on board there was some compute power, significant computing power of course you, you need that to do the real-time decisions that are being made by the vehicles uh, but I don't know what the actual mix was. Okay. What, what I do know is those machines, as compared to what we have today, <laughs> I won't say primitive, but they were you know state of the art for the time. But what I am in awe of is what they did with those machines. Yeah, you, you mentioned before we're talking about a meg mm-hmm. of storage, um, and we have m- more than that in our pockets right now. <laughs> but we we've got thousands of times that right. in our pockets. Well, and it's amazing how much they were able to do with so little. It, you know, it's funny when you think about what mainframers uh, certainly up until recently were were very focused on how do I do everything in the smallest possible space. Mm-hmm. And and what they were able to do because of that kind of model. Yeah, and we we talk a lot about that and you know, the year 2000, but um but it is amazing how much they were able to do with so little. I don't want to say capability because there was a fair amount of capability. Yeah, but capability com- is what you make of the resources. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they, they were, I'd say they were capable of doing a whole lot. Right. But the, the I, I was doing a little bit of reading last night, Mark. I think you were this morning about like the way this this MIT program, mm-hmm. the, oh, Lincoln the, Labs. Yeah, the yeah. Lincoln Labs. So they developed the software because the, it was a, like a single threaded process, but it had to be able to like keep track of several programs technically running at the same time and did so by just swapping programs out of memory into separate modules. And there was a problem like the thing was about to land. It's, you know, they're they're physically looking at the moon as they're about to land on it and the thing is issuing an error. Like mm-hmm. probably the first error it said is at 1201 warning. Yep. And and the response is we have a re- we have a problem. I'm rebooting basically, and it, they're getting the, the moon is getting closer and closer and closer, and they just keep rebooting the thing basically because that's 
that's what that error called to do. You know, start the pro- start the progress over again. Start the progress over again. Um, and and the way that this this one mod this one error was documented, um, it's not the way that I write code where I just like write out a print debug statement. I'm here, <laughs> you know. Other words that I'm okay. Yeah, yeah I got the, that, that statement. I'm there. This is a, an error code that everybody has been trained on. They know what to do with it. There's a there's a a way in and a way out. Hopefully, and everyone just said, okay, we know what this is. We know how to get around it. Um, it kind of speaks to the the mainframe way of doing things. <laughs> it, I think it does. Uh, these the folks who were designing that system recognize that there might be situations that they can't completely identify, such as a exhaustion of resources. Right. So they came up with a process that said. We'll display an error and then we'll cause a restart. So this is for the 1201, 1202. Yeah. I almost said admins. They're not admins. Not admins. <laughs> Alarms, whatever it might Situations. Be. Situations. Uh, and you're right. During the descent, uh, astronaut Armstrong, uh, I think it went off five times. Yeah. Right? And mission control concurred that they could be handled in the way that they handled and the mission continued. Uh, what I found interesting is that uh, from one of the things I read, in all of their simulations, it only occurred once. And the reaction was, let's abort the mission. But they did some analysis and said, no, we have some other ways of dealing with that. And that planning, that testing was what enabled that mission to come up with that solution and then you know, continue the mission. Because you've got – how many people were in the room in like the main mission control? Oh, great question. Lots. Lots. <laughs> Lots. So got, Watch the videos. Yeah. yeah. There's, uh, you can't see both ends at the same time. Yep. There's, there's, there's so many people – Everyone acting like they've done this a million times yes. before, not just for each mission before, but like it reminds me of like Sully, you know, landing in the mm-hmm. Hudson is like, how many times has he done this? Landing in the Hudson once. <laughs> right. Yeah. But it's so calm about it. And it's like, like a trip to the, you know, to the store. Um, just that, that the, the ability to, to carry this mission out with precision and taking personality out of it. Um, they also are monitoring, you know, the astronauts heartbeats the whole time. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, just, you know, flying past the moon at 5,000 miles an hour, Neil Armstrong's heartbeat is like 78 beats per minute. <laughs> like, mine is 88 just watching this. <laughs> well, and you could see, you know, knowing um, at that, during the landing, what was going on. And you couldn't tell by the way they were talking that there was anything really wrong, right? Yeah. So they, they were, um, keep this in stride. We're just going to keep working on the problem and then. Boom. You used a good phrase there, working the problem. And part of the reason they can do that is they are very trained on, on as many scenarios as folks could envision. Same thing happens now in the, in the commercial aviation industry. Uh, that's a key part of how you can have a, a success record in my opinion. There's something else that, that struck me in, in looking at that room where you can't see both sides at the same time is that we're, we're, we keep – you know, we talk about the room, you know, the big room with all the, the chairs and the people's you know, jackets on them, which we'll probably talk about <laughs> later. But at some point in the in the video we watched last night, and everyone should watch the 2019 Apollo 11 film. It's it's just it's beautiful um, in many ways of the word. But they show somebody flipping open a, a little door on their desk and shooting a message in there, like with one of those bank teller pneumatic tubes, a pneumatic yeah. tube, and then they close the top. And my first thought was, oh wow, he's he's sending a slack. <laughs> <laughs> that would be your. Th- First thought. Right. And then my second thought was, okay, well, there, that must mean there's a whole system of pneumatic tubes underneath the tables there. And then my third thought was like, okay, well, this is, you know, it's not 2019. Having 200 screens in a room is not as simple as just having 200 MacBooks and 100 desks. <laughs> They're not connected via Wi-Fi. 
they're probably not they're not even connected via token ring ethernet they might not even be <laughs> tcpip there's probably cables as as thick as like a you know you know a really thick thing <laughs> Going underneath this thing, so it's really not the room; it's the building, mm-hmm. the infrastructure. Just so like everyone can be looking at screens and and the main screens up at the top. I mean, I have an office next to a conference room. I hear the echoing of a WebEx and a cell phone dialed into the same conference call at least three times a day. <laughs> and and here's here's four hundred people in the same room, perfectly modulated, one right after the other, and they're talking to space. That's some planning right there. It is. You mentioned planning is a big one, training and recognizing what your role is and focusing on that role. Yes. So, for example, every person sitting at each of those units knew what they were supposed to be looking for, knew what they were supposed to do if everything was good and knew what they were supposed to do if something unusual happened. They planned out the architecture, not only the room, but of sort of the reporting structure, if you will, of what do we do if person if something happens. And they had assigned roles. You know, EECOM was an, uh, somebody who was responsible for electronics and environment. Uh, communications with the uh, astronauts was always handled through a single person, and that person, I believe, was always an astronaut. Uh, they, they thought a lot about the structure. Right. The and and when I so somebody told me it might have been I think it was Alex Feinberg he's telling me that room is is still there, you can still look at it you can see all the jackets on the back of the the um, the chairs and you see a whole bunch of IBM and McDonnell mm-hmm. Douglas and Boeing, and I, at first I was thinking like oh why, that's weird that's a lot of space why don't they turn it into something else, that room was built for that mission you can't there's toggle switches on there Charlie Lawrence <laughs> tr- toggle switches that are specifically built for one function on that spacecraft, I'm sorry, that aircraft, um, you couldn't turn it around and turn into like a tax preparatory service or to (laughs) to calculate interest the next day. And and we're very fortunate because anything I think that could be reused was. So, for example, some of the source videos that were shot on, on magnetic tape were erased because the tape had, could be reused. Right. So we've lost some of that information, unfortunately. But, but, you know, if you think about, you know, you mentioned it's, they're not MacBooks and it's not Token Ring or TCPIP. Or even Fitty. It's every machine Tag. was connected. <laughs> every machine was connected um, to the system and was identified as a separate machine, right? And, and we, we tend to be – we forget how from the system on out an understanding of exactly what that terminal was – and and up until recently, that's the way terminals were attached. They were terminals for a reason. Mm-hmm. They were connected to the machine at a certain address, known, well known by the system. It's not kind of the haphazard thing we have today. Of hey, it's it's out there somewhere. Yeah, there's there's a connection as many people as we can connect. And right, yeah, it was a weird thing to get used to on the mainframe. I want I want to come back to like the idea of like so that you said there were four or five core systems something or others you mentioned there were five systems each uh, doing processing as part of this RTCC the real time compute complex and like what software or OS or whatever were they running so originally there was some custom written software because quite frankly they didn't, and they didn't call it an operating system they tended to call it a control program or an executive uh, th- oh I, I read that the executive I mm-hmm. thought you were going to say facility but oh sorry. <laughs> Uh, it's my experience that executives don't really do much, though. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's uh, – <laughs> Moving right along. I'm not saying a word. Yeah, moving right along. By the way, we went almost a half hour without using the word facility. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
so they, they, they did have custom written ones because you did have some aspects that were a little bit on the cutting edge, such as multitasking, uh, task prioritization, interrupt handling, and stuff like that. So even for Project Mercury, we had that. Uh, we, they started moving into a standard operating system uh, with the 7090 series. It was an operating system called IBSYS that was a part of what IBM shipped as the operating system for that environment. And that was used. But when you finally got to the OS th- uh, to the System 360, uh, they started actually using a, sli- a modified version of OS 360. So they started moving to a COTS environment, a commercial off-the-shelf environment, oh. as much as they could. And how, how, sim- but, uh, how similar was that to like what an insurance company or a bank or whatever would be running at that time? Mm, not, I don't know. Okay. I, I, my suspicion is that some would be similar. So some of the processing you did for some of the planning uh, might be running a kind of environment that you'd see running in other other kind of businesses. But the real-time aspect, I'm sure they had some modifications that uh, made that work. And, and remember, the, the software back then was what we would consider open source, right? We didn't shut object code. So so everybody got to see everything. Good point. The so uh, I you know public disclosure I was I was not um, on the earth at the time. There are four people who were not on the earth at the time of this. The three men in the capsule and me. Uh, that's a way of saying that you guys are older than I am. Yeah. Um, okay. It came good, through. Good. It came through. Um, how much? How much of the the technical aspect like did people understand at the time of this of the mission? Because I can imagine somebody watching the uh, uh, booster module separation and thinking something went horribly, horribly wrong. I, I don't recall that being an issue. I think folks really understood the basic mechanics of what a launch was, what the risk was, the stages of, of the uh, Saturn V, what would happen at each one. And I have to credit the media. They did a really good job of explaining it. I, I was going to say, well, Walter Cronkite explained everything to us before it happened. True. I, actually, I'm thinking of somebody a little bit uh, on a different network. Uh, <laughs> Jules, I can't think of his last name. Gentleman from Jules Bergman. Oh, yes. ABC. Before each launch, he would explain what was happening. He would explain what would happen if something went wrong. So, for example, if there was an issue with the launch, he just he showed how they had an escape system on the Apollo uh, command module. Mm. They explained how there was a, uh, a zip line, basically, that they could egress, get on the zip line, and, and, and go out. If something happened after liftoff, he explained how the, uh, the rocket on top would take the module away. There was a great effort to educate folks, but I think part of it was as people were genuinely interested. The world was fixated on the lunar project. 600 million people watched Neil Armstrong as he took those first steps. That's absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. It captured the imagination of a country. It was a, it was a capstone for a lot of different things going on. If you look back at the 60s, 1968 may have been the most depressing, one of the most depressing years. Right. right? We have assassinations. We have wars going on. And what happens at the end of 1968? Apollo 8 takes off around Christmas time, orbits the moon, and we start seeing those first pictures of the Earth from the lunar, from the lunar orbit. That fabulous photo, I think it's called Earthrise. Right. I think that gave people hope. And these the the, the first of uh, the last couple Apollo missions before eleven, they were only like months apart at that point. It, that's true. So we had they had the tragic fire, Apollo one fire right. uh, occurs. Um, uh, three astronauts are killed uh, in that. 
in that fire. And it's only a year and a couple of months later, in November of 68, that we start seeing a resumption of actual manned launches. And between that November, I think it was November 68 launch, and the landing on the moon, we had six Apollo missions. It's pretty amazing. And each one built on the one prior. Yep. Each one was trying to validate a particular aspect of right. the lunar project. And I think it's, it's worth pointing out, though, that uh, there was a, a singularity of focus that we rarely see nowadays. <laughs> we, we, really, we were going to the moon one way or another. And there was intense pressure to back off from the commitment because of the financial costs. But when President Kennedy in 1961 said, we're going to the moon – and then in 62 said, yeah, we're really going and we do these things because they're hard, not because they're easy. And oh, by the way, it's going to cost a fair amount of money. Uh, we established that uh, we had a mission and we were going to complete it. And what amazes me is we made that commitment before we really knew if we could actually do it. Right. <laughs> it, it's, it's a series of things that theoretically should work. Mm-hmm which ride on an ocean of reasons why it could not work at all. <laughs> many opportunities for something to go wrong and many times for, for they anyth- did. For anything yeah. to go wrong. Um, but just the, the idea of, of the guidance being computer controlled, were, were they doing that like in planes at that time? Or was that a first? Uh, I'm not sure. But I, my guess is that they were because uh, IBM had a division that was creating computing for aircraft uh, of the military, for and the military. Different, different our area of, of aircraft stuff. It was Sabre a thing at that point? I'm just trying to – Oh, yeah. Sabre, Sabre was 63. Yeah. And but, that, that was actually uh, before System 360. Okay. So Sabre for, for those folks is the uh, airline reservation system that IBM created, I believe, as a joint effort with American Airlines. And if it wasn't American Airlines, I apologize to whatever airline I just slighted. <laughs> JetBlue. Oh. <laughs> wasn't JetBlue. All, all in assembler, by the way. Really? It was all done in assembler. They did it right. Yeah. So, and you, you were telling me, and I, I've heard this in other places too, but there's this iconic shot of this ring <sighs> module thing. Go for it. Yeah, so the, um, the Saturn, the largest rocket, Saturn V, I believe, the largest rocket created up to that point in time and possibly even since that time. Um, and it, it is hard to get a, a grasp of just how big these yeah. things are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and how amazing the physics to actually, when you light the rockets, to make it go straight up. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's so many considerations to that. One of the ones, uh, which I learned from a colleague of mine who was in the acoustics lab here, is you, you, if you watch the, lunar lo- uh, watch the uh, Saturn V take off, you see that iconic burst of smoke and steam. Right. Okay, smoke I understand. Those things are big flame balls, <laughs> right? But steam, and it turns out that they realized that the amount of acoustic vibration which was going to occur with a rocket launch, with a Saturn V launch, was so intense that they had to dampen it. And the way they dampened it, water. So as that rocket is taking off, they're literally shooting a huge amount of water. That's, what, that's the steam you're mm, seeing. To keep it from shaking itself. Yeah. Yep. So okay. – uh, so, so, uh, and, and, I think I learned that while watching TV. (laughs) So they did do a good job. Uh, So your question was uh, that that iconic ring. It was called the instrumentation unit, the Saturn V instrumentation unit. And the the ring, you know, what we're talking about is blast. There's the shot of the – the shot is facing Earth, I believe. And you see this – it jettisoned this ring that just goes tumbling off and there's like fire in the middle of it and stuff like that. Yep. I think they played it. It was part of like the MTV logo or something. <laughs> There's some place where I used to see it yes. like all the time. Really? Yes, MTV used it. Yeah. yeah. 
need. Well, so, so what that was, the instrumentation unit, that, that unit had the job of once the liftoff was committed, right? Once we're, once we're lighting the rocket, that unit was going to get that rocket and the folks on top of it into orbit one way or another, <laughs> right? It did not rely on communications back to Earth. Okay. Right. And that was essential because there was one point where they actually lost communication to Earth for a short period of time. Uh, but that, that ring, I think it was 23 feet in diameter and 5 to 10 feet in, in width, um, that was actually a product of IBM Owego, our federal systems division. Oh, wow. So, so the thing I love about this is this, this whole mainframe story, it, it's a New York story. And for those of us who grew up in New York, that's a cool thing. The mainframes came from New York, the instrumentation unit. Uh, just a lot of history tied here to the Hudson, Hudson well, the greater New York area. Because I was, I was going to ask, how much of this mission could have gone – according to plan if radio communication goes out. And it sounds like there are certain stages that could have happened, but there needs to be like a sync up every yeah. once in a while. So, so I can't comment just in general what would happen if you lost, lost data. But they did lose data, Apollo 12, right? It takes off during a uh, – the weather wasn't perfect. Mm. And as the uh, Saturn V clears the launch tower and it begins its ascent, uh, one of the things that happened is you have this huge cloud of water vapor and other stuff, which turns out is somewhat conductive. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> and there's a thunderstorm in the area and the aircraft is struck by lightning. I thought that was 13. No, 13 was the explosion of the oxygen. Right. right. You're right. Yep. So Apollo 12 uh, – and what happens when it's struck by lightning is they lose all telemetry. So the guys, there are great videos of the folks over in, in uh, Mission Control looking at their consoles like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> but they're organized. They, I'm sure they didn't say that or the other things one might say <laughs> right. when that happens. Uh, but th so they, they've lost all telemetry. That's that instrumentation unit. That's keeping that air, that uh, that rocket heading to where it needs to be. But they have to make a decision. Do we continue with this mission or do we abort? And I'm, I'm convinced they didn't have a huge amount of time to make that decision. And one controller, the EECOM, a guy named John Aaron, remembers something that he had seen in a test a year, 18 months earlier. And he recalls not only what had happened, but what the solution was. So he tells – Bang some, on the side. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jingle the handle. Control, alt, delete. <laughs> yeah. No, it was, there was a switch. Somebody had envisioned something like this happening. And there was a switch called SCE to AUX. SCE to AUX is set signal conditioning equipment to auxiliary. So he recognizes this and he passes it up the chain. Tell the, tell the astronauts to set SCE to AUX. What? <laughs> Sierra Charlie Echo 2 Alpha Uniform X-ray. It goes up to the next person on the chain. Have them set SCE to AUX. What? <laughs> Sierra Charlie Echo 2. And finally it goes up to the, uh, to the command module. And the astronauts, one of them, I, I think, said, what? <laughs> That's and, what and, I hear. I and, hear exactly that was said. Yeah, and, and, and one of them said, oh, I know what that is. He reaches over his head, bleep, flips the switch, telemetry is restored, mission continues. It's that kind of execution under pressure that amazes me. And, and we saw other examples of that. And I think that we see that a lot in the main, good mainframe environments where folks actually anticipate what could go wrong, are trained in what could go wrong, and know how to react when something goes wrong. As you know, you mentioned it that way. I had a interesting conversation with someone who has been on the podcast, Brenton Belmar, Mr. Microcode. Yeah, and he was talking about how they on the fly can can shift um, and and the attention to, to detail and what they have to do to make sure that you can, in, in the case of an error, switch over and have nobody. Yeah. 
the wiser. It's it's pretty awesome. It is. I have to confess, I was all of your episodes are my favorite, but that one taught me something I didn't know and how much checkpointing goes on and how much the processor can figure out, oh, something unusual has happened and I know how to handle it. It's like a duck. Yeah. <laughs> on the surface, it's just floating around, but underneath it's like... Yep. Yeah, you missed... For those listening at home. You missed... My duck motion with my hands. Yeah, it was not... Mom like that one. Mom So this has been wonderful. Yeah. But we're running a little low on time. Wow. Indeed we are. Anything else we want to get to? I'm not singing this time. Okay. By the way, do you realize we sang on the episode I was on, the last one. You did? Yeah. It was a hello, hello, you know, the uh, three oh, stooges right, thing. Yeah, right, right, right. That's, that's got to be a first. I'm putting that on my resume. There we go. There we go. So we're kind of at the top of the hour here, and this has been great, uh, but, you know, we, we shouldn't stay on too long. No, there's, there's people waiting at the door here. Yeah, the uh, studio is very busy. So, you know why? The padded, the padded walls. I'm telling you. It's, it's, <laughs> people come in here just to scream sometimes, yeah, I think. Yeah. So what, what should we be doing for, to celebrate this? Should we be having cake, cookies, you know? I'll tell you how I think I'm going to celebrate. I'm just going to think about all of the accomplishments that happened, all of the infrastructure that made those accomplishments happen, all of the benefits that we got from those accomplishments. A lot of folks have said, you know, was, was this investment of treasure really worth it? I think it absolutely was. It uh, pulled this country out of uh, a little bit of a deficit. I won't say depression, but out of some tough times. It gave us a, a view of hope. And the technology um, that fell out of this, I mean, fell out is a bad phrase, uh, but that was a um, – a derivative of this. I mean, I, one people have argued that one of the reasons that we have such a robust semiconductor industry is because these uh, these missions bought lots of semiconductors and they they gave uh, these companies business very early on in their career. So at one point, I think they were consuming forty or fifty percent of the semiconductors that were made in this country. And if you're a fledgling business, that's what you need. You need right. business. Yeah, that's a lot to think about. Maybe, maybe, maybe while you're eating a moon pie or something. <laughs> there you go. Eat moon pies. And follow their Twitter. It's pretty. It's a crazy ride. Um, I, what I got out of of it was that um, it makes it hard for me to say that any other project is like too difficult to pull off mm. when you think about the scope and the risks and the work and the dedication that went into the moon missions. You know, the Apollo missions, and for us, you know. For me to say, like, yeah, I don't really see that thing working out the right way. <laughs> it's well, and, they, they and, sent people to the moon. <laughs> well, and you're, yeah, you're you're hitting one of my hot buttons, right? I, oh, is, it, is that this one? <laughs> it, if if you're if you're coming into work and you're not saying, I have no idea how I'm going to get this thing done, then maybe you're not trying hard enough. There, there was one specific part of the the journey. That it struck out, it stuck out to me is the the module goes vertical, mm-hmm. like so it, it's it um you know it's traveling widthwise anyway instead of like a I don't know how to explain this whatever but <laughs> it's it's it, the hand gestures are priceless yeah, thank you um it's it rotates you know like instead of being tossed like a football it rotates ninety degrees and then slowly rotates like like pirouettes like a clock. For the purpose of cooling it off against the the heat that's caused by the friction of flying through the air at 5,000 miles an hour or whatever. And that's something that somebody obviously came up with and said, you know what? We need to get rid of some heat. 
here's a way that we can possibly do this. <laughs> what a risk. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they did it without people in there first, but like what an amazing idea. What a clever way of getting rid of heat and what a cool way of doing it. Yeah. Like, But it's, it's another – stage of the whole process. There's like the, the burn to earth, the burn to moon, and then there's this other mid-space pirouette thing going on <laughs> in the middle. Like <laughs> Somebody realized. I mean, there were probably other solutions considered. We can have a water containment system. But every pound that you take into space right. requires a multiplier of, of, of pounds to get it up there in terms of fuel. Yeah. Right. But, so it, it's essential that you keep things as simple as you possibly can. And they did. The design work was, was elegant. It was inspirational. Uh, the singularity of focus is the thing that comes back, uh, that I keep coming back to. There, we have a purpose and we are going to do it. It was a commitment. It was a commitment to complete the mission. And, and I'll point out, remember, when President Kennedy challenged, made this challenge, it was not to get man to the moon. It was man to the moon and bring that. him back. That's <laughs> an important part of it. And a lot of their energies went into making it as safe as possible. They couldn't remove all the risk. There's no way. But they could minimize as much as they could. And I think they did a very credible job. <laughs> well, I have one other question. One other question. Um, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm a hardware nerd. So I'm looking at like all the consoles that got there. They got all these toggle switches and screens and stuff like that. There was something on there I, I didn't understand. There was like this – there was a, a telephone-looking handset, and then there was like a circle next to it where the ah. buttons usually are. <laughs> Is that some sort of special lunar <laughs> dialing module? What was that word you just used? Module? No, the other one began with a D and it ended in aisle. Dial. <laughs> dial. Yeah, that was, that was a rotary phone. Is you, that why we say dial? <laughs> Seems like a mighty inefficient way of entering numbers. I'm thinking. I'm feeling real old. Yeah, actually it was. But there was an opportunity there, by the way. So um, if you were connected or you pay – connected, politically connected or what, what have you, or you – I think you could pay extra fee for this. You could get special numbers and these numbers were very low. So I you – know, if your phone number happened to end in, I don't know, 1111, that was a lot faster than if your number ended in 9999. The phone company, I believe, did uh, – did some discrimination in terms of how they offered those out to uh, you know, employees. Hey, you might get one that's 2221 as an example. <laughs> I think this episode has successfully touched down. <laughs> and we were, we were ready to hop into the uh, – what was the bus that they got into, the decontamination well, thing? They first got into the helicopter. Right. And they went from the helicopter to the uh, decontamination Yes. Protective unit, yeah. Right. Because they didn't want to make sure they didn't break back any like space fungus. Well, think about it. Who knew what was on the moon? We hadn't sent anybody. We didn't know. So they took precautions. Smart people. Either way, we're going to decontaminate this podcast. And, I uh, think we should. Yeah. I definitely think we should. Oh, man, Charlie, please run us out. You've been listening to Terminal Talk with Frank and Jeff. For questions or comments, or if you have a topic you'd like to see covered on a future episode, direct all correspondence to contact at TerminalTalk.net. That's contact at TerminalTalk.net. Until the next time, I'm Charlie Lawrence, signing off.